This episode is brought to you by Fooley Gemstones. I'm Carol Holton, the voice of jewellery. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm an author and broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas and forgotten histories. So join me as I tell sparkly tales and meet all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. This is the last episode of season five, and I did a shout out to the community of If Jewels Could Talk that's now built up in 146 countries around the world, I'm delighted to say, and asked you for questions. What did you want to hear about in this final episode? And thank you to everyone who has sent in a question. I've had a lot, Um, and it's been really interesting, and some of them are quite involved. So I think I'm going to keep some of your ideas and make them into entire podcasts, like whoever sent in the brilliant question saying, could could we talk about particular museum collections? I would love to do that. And we will do that maybe in season six. So I've selected a few. And thank you to everyone for, for contacting us. I was asked, what is the difference between fine and high jewellery? And I mean, there is no complete right answer to this question. There are, there are a couple of facts and some of it's a feeling, um, a sense that you get from a piece of jewellery. So high jewellery really combines the rarest, most exquisite gems and pearls with excellent design and craftsmanship. It's a sort of haute couture of the jewellery world, a celebration of the art of the jeweller working with the finest materials and meticulous craftsmanship that can bring these imaginative, creative visions to life. And I would say particularly the thing about high jewellery is that it's unique. It's a one-off. It's not something that would be replicated. I mean, often in fine jewellery, you can get a a sort of very classic design in the big houses, sort of like the um, Serpenti in Bulgari or the Panther at Cartier. And those, I would class some of them as fine jewellery because they're a design that might be made in particular editions, whereas a Panther and a Serpenti can also be high jewellery. That would be a unique one of a kind with an extraordinary gemstone, extraordinary craftsmanship that's taken hundreds of hours to, to complete by hand. So I hope that makes it a little bit clearer. Now, I was also asked, as we're coming up to the holiday season, what I thought made the most personal gift for someone to give a loved one. And I think that's really a charm. I think A charm can be worn anywhere. So if you're giving it to a young girl, it can be hung on a hoop around her ear. Someone older, it could be on a pendant. Um, If somebody particularly collects charms, they're always thrilled to have a new version to add to their bracelet. And I think um, sentimentality is a really lovely thing about human nature. And I think if you get a charm that resonates with their personality, their hobbies, their life. There's nothing more sentimental 
or thoughtful because it shows how well you know that person. And every time they look at it, they're going to remember you. And you can find vintage charms that aren't expensive. A lot of the big department stores now have um, particular charm bars where you can choose something that's really appropriate for whoever you're giving it to. You need to start early. If you've got something unusual, like I heard of somebody recently who has the nickname Pretzel. Now, that's not such an obvious one. So you may have to have that created. But look up in your list of local goldsmiths. Somebody will be delighted to make you a pretzel or something, some other little personal um, nickname for a loved one. So I was also asked about the Orloff diamond. Now, this is a, a spectacular diamond of 189.6 carats. It's displayed now in the Diamond Fund, Gonkran, in the Kremlin in Moscow. And it was one of the great diamonds amassed by the rulers of Russia. But it's got a very complex history. Now, it was believed to be a fine Indian stone. I mean, probably maybe from the Golconda mine that was depleted pretty early on in history. But on one side of the diamond is a definite indentation. In spite of the indentation, it rested in the imperial scepter made for Catherine the Great during her reign. Some experts, diamond experts, feel that the particular facets and the way they're cut and displayed in the indentation means it can be identified with a legendary long-lost stone. So this is a bit of a mystery. There was a merchant called Jean-Baptiste Tavernier who was one of the first Europeans permitted to examine the stones of the Mughal rulers of India. And he provided several illustrations of the stones that he had seen in his work, Six Voyages of Jean-Baptiste Tavernier. So that was in the 17th century. Um, now, there was a diamond at that time of uh, 729 carats called the Great Mogul. That was found in the middle of the 17th century in Hyderabad in India. And it found its way into the Mughal treasury where it was seen by Tavernier. And the stone was cut by an Italian stone cutter called Hortensio Borgo, who reduced the stone to 279 carats. And then that's the last visible trace of this diamond. It seemed to have been lost to history. Now, there is a, is a book by a great diamond expert, Ian Balfour, called The Great Diamonds. Now, he compares the drawings of Tavernier's Great Mogul Diamond with the photographs of the Orloff Diamond in the Kremlin. And there are similarities. In the shape, for instance, the Orloff resembles a pigeon egg. And Tavernier wrote that the Great Mogul Diamond was presented in the form of an egg cut in half. Now, that to me sounds the same. And the pattern of the facets of both is similar. And the indentation of the Orloff correlates with Tavernier's writing because he documented that there was a slight crack and a little flaw in the Great Mogul stone. So the story of the Mogul has no ending, whilst the story of the Orloff has a very complicated beginning. So it's up to romance and imagination to whether or not that we we think these might be this one and the same stone. The weights aren't similar. For sure, the mogul was 280 carats. The Orloff is slightly under 200 carats. But in those days, sometimes weights weren't accurately recorded. So that isn't doesn't necessarily mean they're not one and the same stone. 
So where did the Orlov start? Um, it was one of the stones believed to be set in the eyes of an idol in the sacred temple of India, dating from the 17th century, which was regarded as one of the most sacred shrines in southern India, composed of seven rectangular enclosures set with, within each other. And at the end was this idol set with two diamonds in large eye sockets. Now, a French soldier who deserted the army was employed nearby and he determined to actually steal the diamond. Now that was took years of planning. It wasn't something a snatch and grab because no Christian was allowed beyond the fourth of the seven enclosures. So he embraced Hinduism and became a frequent worshipper at the shrine to allow himself further and further into the enclosures. One night he grabbed his opportunity, prized one of the diamonds out of the socket and fled to Madras where he sold it for £2,000 apparently to an English sea captain who bought it to London, who sold it to another merchant and it changed hands several times before arriving in Europe. Now there's a quandary that we might have to do on another podcast as to whether the other stone left behind might have been the Great Mogul. Maybe they were both cut into this, this shape of an egg to look like eyes. Now there's another story whereby the stone landed up, it was looted from the Mughal rulers, taken by a Persian merchant through a circuitous and very bloody route. This involved a lot of murder along the route to obtain the diamond and history says Count Orloff travelled to Amsterdam himself to acquire the stone from a diamond dealer. Now, who was Count Orloff? He was Count Grigory Orloff, 1723 to 1783, a Russian nobleman, had a distinguished army career. He was a lover of the Grand Duchess Catherine. And shortly after the accession of her husband, Peter II, to the throne, organized a coup with his brother, whereby the weak Peter was overthrown in favor of Catherine. He served Catherine, but he was frustrated when he was usurped in her affections by Potemkin, who became her lover. In 1775, he actually left Russia. But he had been sent on a mission two years earlier to Amsterdam, where he learned of the Great Diamond, and he bought it for 400,000 rubles. Now, he could have bought it to remind Catherine of the role he played in her accession to the throne, Possibly it was a sort of generous looking threat. It could have been that he hoped to restore his place in her bedchamber. But Catherine accepted it. It was presented to her on her saint's day and had it set into her scepter where it remains beneath a golden eagle. Um, he received a marble palace as thanks in St. Petersburg, but he was never restored as her favourite and two years later married his cousin and died shortly thereafter. However, to complicate things, history is never straightforward. There's a document signed by Orlov and the court jeweller, Lazarev, suggesting the role of Orlov, Count Orlov, in the purchase was just as a go-between, that Catherine didn't want to be seen. It wasn't um, a sort of monarch's role to go and haggle over the price of a stone with a stone dealer in Amsterdam. So Orloff was sent to, to go and do the haggling for her. So his position really, it wasn't such a generous gift. It was more that um, he played the role of the Wagner and the intermediary in the purchase of the diamond 
And it was actually, the diamond was given his name in the honour of the role he played for Empress Catherine. Now there's a load more about that stone we could go into, maybe we will on another podcast, but it just shows the, the romance and the stories behind these stones. Diamonds really can talk. Now another question. One of our community very sadly lost her husband this year in February. First of all, I want to express our sorrow to you that on the loss of your husband this year, it must be such a difficult time, especially as we are approaching the holiday season. And I'm very grateful that you reached out to ask me about this question about a widow ring. She was wondering whether she should purchase a new ring to reflect the fact that her husband has gone, her loved one has has left her life. Um, and widowers can do the same, of course. I, I really think she's referring to the idea of the, the mourning ring. This was something that was particularly prevalent in Queen Victoria's reign. You could say it's when it reached the, the zenith. I mean, there have always been mourning rings, um, memento mori, to show the fleetingness of life, to show the loss of loved ones from, from you know, the, the, the ancient times. But I think it's particularly associated with, with Queen Victoria's reign. And it's the idea of a ring worn to serve as a reminder of the individual and a celebration of their love. At that time, they were made in somber shades of black jet, enameled onyx, bog oak, sometimes lightened with shimmering pearls and diamonds, which were really set as, as teardrops or a reminder of, of tears. Often they had the dark symbolism of death, of crossbones, a skeleton, an hourglass, symbolic of time passing. Mortality has always been a theme in jewels, but by the 17th century, the imagery merged with mourning rings became much more personal and engraved maybe with the initials of the deceased and their coat of arms, maybe. And these would be distributed in memory of the person to their friends, family, servants, according to their will. Some were engraved in the reverse. Um, you could either show the engraving or it could be um, secreted within the shank of the ring. Queen Victoria had so many mourning rings and brooches created on the death of her beloved Prince Albert. Um, and she distributed them as remembrances of his life. Some were engraved with in remembrance of the beloved Prince, December 14th, 1861, from V.R. Victoria Regina. It's not just a European practice. This is adopted everywhere. George Washington, in his will, indicated that there should be mourning rings created with some of the money left in the will. To my sisters-in-law, Hannah Washington and Mildred Washington, he wrote, to my friends, Eleanor Stewart, Hannah Washington of Fairfield and Elizabeth Washington of Hayfield, I give each a mourning ring. Of the value of $100, these bequests are not made for the intrinsic value of them, but as mementos of my esteem and regard. And they were inscribed in gold lettering on a band, George Washington, 14th December, 1799. So he wanted people to remember him. Um, in your situation, you want a remembrance of your husband. And I think you can do that in any way you want. I don't think you have to have a specific ring created. Although that's a lovely idea. I don't know if you have daughters or daughters-in-law or um, it would be really lovely for you all to, to share a ring 
um, maybe a simple design and, and then you each have something that you remember him by. Because the second part of your question, you asked what people did with their wedding jewellery, whether um, they kept wearing it or whether they should take it off their engagement or wedding ring. I think if you take an engagement or a wedding ring off, it denotes that really you're divorced from the person and you're not divorced. You're probably very much still married in your spirit and in your mind and in your emotional life. So I think to wear the ring, you should. You should wear it because automatically that's a remembrance of the happiest day of your life and so many times that you've experienced and shared while you're wearing the ring. So I, I, I really don't think you should remove your wedding jewellery. Divorcees, I mean, you asked about divorcees. Yes, I think it's far more likely for divorcees to remove their jewellery and indeed, depending on their strength of feeling, probably what we've had of so many people who've thrown their rings away. Um, Coco Chanel famously was given a, a ring by the Duke of Westminster and she threw it overboard. I mean, there are plenty of people who are very cross with their partners and actually dispense with rings or sell it. But obviously this isn't in your case and I hope you continue to wear your engagement ring and it continues to bring you very happy memories into the future. Another question which might have been prompted by the fact that if Jewels Could Talk is sponsored by Fuli Gemstones. Now this is a sustainable mine in the Changbai Mountains um, which is the largest source of clear peridot in the world. And the question I was asked was, is peridot a new stone? Because they seem to have noticed it being talked about recently. Well, no, it's not. It's possibly one of the oldest stones known to man. I mean, some peridot is so ancient, it's found in palisite meteorites, which are remnants of our solar system. Well, the birth of our solar system 4.5 billion years ago. Um, so they're remnants of peridot from that. And um, Pliny, the ancient Roman historian who wrote Naturalis Historia, which was really a template for encyclopedias, um, and he had a treatise on gemstones within that, and he described it. He described a particular topaz with a singular green color, and it's a stone formed on an island in Arabia. Now, this was most likely peridot. He didn't have the name of peridot then, but his description of this topaz is most likely to be peridot because we know that it was found thousands of years ago in a small island, which is now called St. John's Island, in the Red Sea in Egypt. So that tallies with his description. It's found deep in the Earth's mantle, and the only other stone found in the Earth's mantle is the diamond. And like the diamond, it's also associated with light. The ancient Egyptians described Peridot as the gem of the sun, and actually, it's always had the description, a lot of people describe Peridot as the evening emerald, because even when it's less light, as dusk comes in the evening, Peridot keeps its sparkle. It was hugely popular in the Art Deco movement, um, when newness was all about going against the all-white look of the previous decade um, of the Belle Epoque when everything was white, white diamonds, white pearls. And so everyone went crazy for this, this bright green colour. And in 1912, it became the birthstone for the month of August, which is actually my um, birth month. 
So I particularly was, I think it was serendipity when um, I became sponsored by a Peridot mine. I mean, it couldn't be a better match. Um, the most pr high profile Peridot that any of us have seen, and a lot of us around the world saw this year, was on the St. Edward's Crown, which is the crown that's used at the moment a new British monarch is crowned. It's only used for the moment of the crowning, and then we don't see it again. So we saw it this year at the crowning of King Charles III. And this is um, a crown that dates back to Edward the Confessor, who was one of the last Anglo-Saxon kings. It's very symbolic, the fact that there is a peridot in the centre of this crown, because the, the bright green colour is associated with positivity and spring and rebirth and new beginnings. And I think it's just so symbolic that this crown is only used, set with peridot, at the beginning of a, a new reign with all the, the hopes for the future of a long and successful reign. Now, one of the reasons that you've probably heard about it a lot recently, it's, be it's become taken up by the kind of fashion crowd. It's being worn by Taylor Swift, so all the Swifties are getting in on Peridot. Her Royal Highness Princess of Wales is wearing Peridot, has been photographed wearing it. Her favourite jeweller, Kiki McDonough, wears a, makes a lot of jewellery with Peridot. And young Chinese people who've the Chinese history with jade is very strong, that apple green colour, and it's um, very symbolic to, to the Chinese, associated with intuition, luck, prosperity, success. But it's incredibly expensive to find beautiful clear jade, so a lot of them are turning to that similar apple green colour in Peridot. Plus, it fits with young people's green credentials that they look for now. It's a natural stone. It's um, that green colour doesn't have to be enhanced. It's created beneath the earth in that colour. And there's zero waste. There's zero waste from the mine, um, which is all sustainably built. Um, there's um, a natural programme that preserves the, the local wildlife, the tigers in the Changbang Mountains, the local environment, employment, um, that it supports. And most importantly, there is zero waste. The host rock called basalt is repurposed to help um, local crops. It's been proven to um, make stronger crops with higher levels of nutrition. And olivine, which is the only byproduct of peridot, can be crushed and scattered on the ground. And it absorbs carbon dioxide. So it is um, a carbon capturer, which, as we know, as we face climate changes, is a very important message for people. And I think that's why um, a lot of people are turning to stones that um, can be proven to have, have no waste and do no harm in, in the way that they are sourced. The ancient Egyptian hieroglyph for the colour green was the papyrus stalk plant. And the ancient Egyptians held the papyrus stalk in very high esteem, which and it suggested growth and even life itself. And I think the green colour conjures up comforting images of countryside, of gardens, of spring. So it has environmentally friendly objectives in the reflection of its colours which has um, made it very popular. And its fellow stone from the Earth's mantle, the diamond, is used as a signal of committing to love, whereas the peridot 
has been used historically to attract love. And there's something kind of cosmically special about it because in 2005, Peridot was found in comet dust brought back from the Stardust robotic space probe. That's kind of amazing, I think, that it's, um, it's up there and it's been in meteorites. It's in space dust as well as the deepest, deepest parts of the Earth. So I love that. And then it kind of coincides in the middle on our fingers somehow. <laughs> Before I go on to my final question, which is quite personal, asking me what I'm going to spend money on, or what I would buy if I spent money, um, I'm going to answer a question that was the one that I had the most requests for. This was a multi-ask question people wanted to know about Joel Rosenthal, who is the preeminent name of our period, Ja, which stands for Joel Arthur Rosenthal, who acknowledged as the greatest jeweler alive in the world today. He's the only living artist that the Metropolitan Museum in New York have had a show about. So what can I tell you about Joel? Um, I'm very lucky to know him personally and consider him a friend. I've become a friend over many years. Believe me, it took a long time. I had to knock at his door for many years because he doesn't like journalists and he tells them to go away and not write about him. Um, so the first thing I can tell you is that Joel is different. He does everything differently. He's very discreet. He was, let me tell you a little about his background. He was an only child. He was brought up in New York City. He studied history and philosophy at Harvard. He moved to Paris very young, um, where he's lived his entire adult life. And um, with his partner, Pierre Janet, they started a um, tapestry shop in Paris. And that's important because in his work with jewellery, it's, it's, it's very interesting to compare the sort of um, the patterns, tapestry-like patterns and washes of stones that he does in, in graduated colours, which have been pretty much copied by every subsequent jeweller around the world ever since. But anyway, um, he did his tapestry shop. He, he worked for Bulgari for six months and then he set up in the Place Vendôme in a small atelier where he remains today. He's one of the only people I know who doesn't want to move, who doesn't want to get bigger, who doesn't want to um, run around the world and expand. He, he stays where he is. And there are very few women in the world who know about him who don't wouldn't kill for a piece of his jewellery. There are not many who own it. He, he produces very few pieces a year. They're so beautifully crafted. They take so long to realise from his idea um, the perfection that he demands. Indeed, uh, there's one particular flower that blossoms rarely and he wanted it sculpted and created from the real plant itself. So that took years because... They had very short times when it was actually flowering to create it. So there are very few people who own his jewellery, a few celebrities, um, people with well-known names and people who are celebrated for their work. The late Barbara Walters had a lot. Elizabeth Taylor, who's on the podcast this week, commissioned Joel to make pieces. And people with famous family names like Guinness, Rothschild, Paltrow, Santo Domingo, own his jewellery. And it's for women like that, it becomes like a club. They kind of recognise across a crowded room who's wearing a piece of jar. And it kind of elevates them in each other's eyes. It's hard to get into. You need an introduction to enter his atelier. And it's certainly a risk to commission him because 
He doesn't disclose how much it's it's going to cost. Um, it will cost what it costs to to realize this piece. I was allowed to write about him in 2002 when he had I um, had the global exclusive to write about him in Vogue when he did a show at um, Somerset House in London. His, some of his clients were allowed to talk to me for this particular story. But to show him what esteem he's held, there was um, a famous movie director and he was over here and he was actually um, spending time in London and somebody had a meeting set up with them and he rang and said, I'm really sorry, I've got to cancel my meeting to, tomorrow with you because Joel Rosenthal has a 30-minute window tomorrow morning and I have to fly to Paris. I mean, that is the kind of esteem people will drop anything and get there if they can. He doesn't, as I said, he doesn't want to be written about the times that um, I've said, Joel, I'll give you a whole page in Vogue. I just want to photograph one thing. And he says, no, he doesn't advertise. So it was unusual when people could talk to me. Somebody told me that he makes things that look like they're just suspended. They're just precious stones that are suspended. Um, he doesn't use big diamonds or big gemstones. That's not what his work relies on. He he uses unusual stones. It's the colour that he's after. Maybe a violet sapphire, green garnet, and amethyst that are so beautiful. Um, but it could be rubies that once graced the tunic of a Maharaja. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just the pinhead of a colour that he's after in particular. Other times it could be a precious diamond that's suspended between slender pieces of metal that looks like it could fall out. And indeed, one client said to him, what if it falls out when I'm wearing it? Because it appears held by nothing at all. And he said, if you can't afford to lose it, you can't afford to wear it. I tell you, he, he thinks differently. And his idea is that he doesn't hanker after the expensive gemstones. It's, he doesn't like the idea of a bank account worn on the ears or the finger. Let me tell you, in fact, when I wrote this story for Vogue, Diane von Furstenberg um, wrote to me by email, and actually I kept it. It's here, dated June the 18th, 2002. Joel Rosenthal is a true magician. Could be the best jeweler of all time. Walking into his shop in Paris is an experience I never miss. No sign you have to know. You already feel special. You ring the bell, you wait. And when you are let in, you always feel intimidated. In which room will you go? Who else is in the other room? It feels like a play, very, very Parisian. When you're finally let in the vault room, it's Nirvana. So many exquisite original pieces. I love Joel. I love and wear his jewellery with pride and a sort of complicity. I know he designed it with me and me only in mind. I wear it with him in mind. Joel is a poet with stones and with words. He's a true Renaissance man. Now, I couldn't describe the feeling of going into his atelier better. There is all that. It's, it's, it's a very magical place and a very private place. Um, I can't tell you the people I've seen in there because that's private. What I can tell you is that there are flowers. There are flowers everywhere. There are botanical books about flowers. And in fact, 
I wrote, if you want to see a lot of Joel's um, work, he very kindly allowed me to replicate some images in my book, Floral Jewels. And what did I write? The small velvet-lined salon of Jar near the Place Vendôme is the precious garden nursery where the most beautiful jeweled flowers are nurtured into blossoms over years of painstaking design and crafting cultivation. Joel works directly from nature, but his spring flowers, never exotic varieties, but well-documented everyday blooms, command attention for their spectacular beauty. Fresh, dewy, budding and blooming flowers and gently wilting fallen petals have a realism that's not tempered by the unattractive side of nature. They are mounted in tweed settings of tonal washes of gemstones chosen for their painterly effect of their colours. Bouquets of lily of the valley flower heads quiver delicately on diamond pins and the heart-stopping moment a gleaming white fragile bellhead drops its weight onto a diamond stem is realised by a teardrop oriental pearl. Reviewing the 2013 Jules Bajar exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Vogue, I wrote, His life-size geranium brooch will dazzle a new generation Others will be pulled towards the realism of a gently petaled garnet lilac sprig, so convinced of its naturalism, they might think they can smell its sweet fragrance. I suppose the only other flowers um, like uh, that are of that quality are by Peter Carl Fabergé, his flower studies. And um, Joel's are just spectacular. And it's not just the flowers, it is the the, the wide oeuvre of his work, the geometric swirls, sculpted horse heads. It is um, wild oats that look like they're gently bending in the wind. It's pansies. It's lily spray brooches that take two and a half years to complete, set with 10,000 stones in aluminium. And one of his um, exhibitions was sponsored by Christie's and they wrote, what defines Charles' work is his superior craftsmanship, evocative of the quality of jewels of the 18th and 19th centuries. His bold sense of proportion resulting in comparatively sculptural creations and for his propensity for incorporating shallow and unusual gemstones. And it's his attention to detail that is striking. It, it's very hard to describe them. Classicism with a twinkle is one description, but it is a sort of private world of exquisite beauty and um, Joel's imagination. He doesn't uh, draw like some other designers. These he, he imagines them in his head, which is very unusual in all the designers I speak to. He actually sees the completed piece and then he works with his craftsman painstakingly to, to create the piece he's actually imagined. But, you know, what would I buy if I was there? It would definitely be a flower for me. These, just the freesias, the wild roses, the hellebores. But as I said, um, I can show you some images of those um, that have been in my book. There's lots of wit as well. There's lots of wit in some of his pieces. Cerise will be written in beautiful sort of small rubies. And there was a, a little pebble that looked like somebody had picked up from a beach that um, in his show at the, at the Met Museum in New York and it was studded by a ruby just where you imagine the heart would be. It was just like a red beating heart in the middle of this just ordinary pebble 
And you just can imagine what that must have meant to someone. Also, his shows are different. At the Met Museum, there was just an entire red wall of these exquisite butterflies and dragonflies with opalescent stones like moonstones and opals and shimmery little gemstones as if they were all in flight. And in Somerset House in London, it was a dark, dark room and everyone was handed a little torchlight. So they had to bring the jewel to life themselves by shining a torchlight on it. Again, uh, I just want you to know I have invited him on the podcast. (laughs) Um, I know all of you are so interested and I feel I've told him how important it is that that we hear his voice and that his voice is, is you know kept for the for future generations. He's resistant and in fact showing you his his wit and his sense of humor. He says, "Carol, I'll come on your podcast right after I've done the comedy club in Paris." So don't hold your breath, but I'm working on it. And I think for me, if I had to sum up anything, it's more than color and light. His jewels for me are emotion. There's something that touches my heart. And the Lily of the Valley piece that I described earlier when I saw it, it is just something touches me. And that something with the tremulous diamond, scalloped edged bells of this Lily of the Valley shimmering from the stalk tied loosely with a diamond ribbon with a large oriental pearl nodding its head and it's just something that you want to look at just you just want to keep looking at and it like any piece of art that speaks to you it um, evokes an emotional reaction and and that's what his jewelry does in me and I was also asked somebody asked me quite a few questions and I want you to know that I will be answering the rest of them and some of them were so good they'll make entire podcasts so thank you for your ideas you asked me if I had a hundred pounds, five hundred pounds, a thousand pounds, or five thousand pounds, what would I buy? Well, sadly, I would, would not get me a piece of jar, um, nor one of the Fabergé flower studies that I would hanker after. Now, a hundred pounds, I think I'd go and rootle around a flea market, a junk shop, and I would look for a great piece of costume. I wouldn't want new costume. I would want to buy vintage. I think there's more detail in vintage. And I'm not trying to pass it off as a real jewel, but I just think it gives it a different level of depth and interest to have that detail. So I'll go rootering around. I mean, I do sometimes buy costume brooches. I don't often wear them. I don't know why, but they're lovely to have. And some I just keep out on my dressing table and look at them. Um, And they're always useful. I once got caught at a book launch having tossed accidentally some coffee down my jacket. Uh, It went all over my shirt and I just had to wear a jacket and I had to do it up with brooches down the centre. So they're really useful for the original thing they were created for, which is attaching pieces of fabric together like pins, like just really lovely safety pins. So I'd go and buy a costume brooch, um, £500, £500. I have a beautiful 1920s malachite, again it's green, malachite ring um, made in the 1920s and I wear it on one hand and recently I saw a designer, Tom Wood, is making very modernist looking silver rings with malachite which I think would fit that budget and I'd wear one on each hand. 
A thousand pounds. A thousand pounds. I am really aware of the passing of Elsa Peretti, the great designer. We have a very good podcast on her life. And I think with a thousand pounds, I'd go again and go on to antique sites online and look for a silver bud vase, one of her vintage silver bud vases, because I just think it's such a lovely idea to wear as a pendant, to put a little flower in, um, another way to have a floral jewel. And I just think that it's a beautiful object to have. And again, just to have it lying around on your dressing table. But I'd want it to be um, a vintage one. £5,000. I saw recently Pippa Small, who's the anthropologist and jewellery designer. And she works with the charity Turquoise Mountain in areas of war and conflict, which of course is on our mind at the moment. And we want to support And she travels to these areas and teaches women how to be economically independent. And we do have a whole podcast on it with Shoshana Stewart, the um, president of Turquoise Mountain. But um, I saw somebody wearing a pair of dark green tourmaline stone um, chandelier earrings. And they have my name written all over them. And um, I don't know if it was a one-off. But that's what I'd spend £5,000 on. So, And I'd love to hear what you're going to get for Christmas and what you might spend or buy if if you had those amounts of money. I think it would be really interesting to hear uh, across the board in all the territories where If Jewels Could Talk is listened to, I'd love to hear what you would buy. And I know what my New Year's resolution is going to be. It's going to be to try and be more visual for you all. I mean, I love the fact that the stories bring jewels alive. And I'm so happy that this podcast has done what it set out to do, which was connect people because I started it in lockdown. And um, it's I wanted to get immersed in my subject whilst we were in lockdown, maybe to take my mind off things. And also to to connect with people. And now I feel like we've got this great connection going around the world, brought to life through the spoken word. But there's no getting away from it. Jewelry is visual. And I my New Year's resolution is to get better with the imagery to show everybody. So I promise I'm going to get better. And just to thank everybody for their questions. We'll get around to answering them all in the next season. And please keep listening, please keep supporting and wish you a happy holiday season and see you very soon in season six. And thank you to Natasha Cowan, my producer, Tim Thornton, my editor and Fully Gemstones for their support and sponsorship. See you next year. If Jewels Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Lavanda. You can find our sponsors at foolygemstones.com and me at carolwalton.com.